We're going to be reading from chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Turn with me also to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Luke, chapter 16. Beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you as a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. We look at the final judgment of the unsaved in the book of Revelation. 
There's no altar calls. There's no crooked lawyers. There's no appeals. There's no friends of the accused. Uh, all of mankind that has never put faith in Christ, trusted his word, will stand here. There's two resurrections. The first resurrection is a resurrection of the righteous. This will be a second resurrection in which all the unsaved, all the way back from Cain, all the way through Nimrod, Babel, days of Noah, all of unsaved mankind come before this throne. We don't understand it to be a general judgment where the saved and unsaved, only unsaved stand before this throne, only the unsaved. And they're cast into second death. Every one of us were born with first death. We were dead to God upon arrival. Our birth could have said dead upon arrival. We landed in this world dead to God, dead in sins, trespasses. We needed a new birth. We needed life. But now we want to look at what he says in this final judgment. Notice what he says, the time and place. I saw a great white throne, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. The Old Testament prophets, 2 Peter 3.10, says the physical universe is going to be burned and given up to flames. This entire earth, all the stars, the whole universe, he said, will pass away with fervent heat. So we've cast Satan into the lake of fire. We've got the false prophet, Antichrist, in the lake of fire. We burn up the heavens. We burn up the earth. All the old order has passed. One thing yet to take place. The judgment that decides the fate of the unsaved forever. It will be a judgment that the same amount of time is meted out to everyone, but there will be degrees of punishment. Uh, we find when we come to this judgment, uh, we have two. Let's see here. I can do that. Let's put some books up here. And the books that he uses, and the book. And he said he judges men and women out of the book and the books. He's going to judge them. Now, the one book is the book of the living, those who know Christ. He calls it later the Lamb's book of life, those who have come to Christ somewhere in history. In the Old Testament, they didn't preach Christ died, buried, and rose again. But men like Abraham and others, by faith, believed in God, put their trust in God. But before this throne, it's a matter of a set of books and a book. Who sits upon the throne? The judge upon the throne. According to John 5, Jesus said, was told by the Father, the Father has appointed all judgment to his Son. One place he said, because he's the Son of Man, he will be entrusted to judge man. Look at this, at this scene. The universe has passed away. 
the righteous are with God. And now all unsaved people come and they stand before him who has been judged. We had six trials for him, three trials in a Roman court, three in a Jewish court. We hired false witnesses. We spit on him. We made fun of him. We said, you're not really the king of the Jews. You're an imposter. This one will be the judge. Every atheist will face him. Every dictator, every Hitler, every Haman, every Stalin, every Putin, every wild-eyed denier of Jesus Christ and who he is, you will come before that throne. And he will be the one that will meet it out. You will face him whose eyes are penetrating. And as you look on the throne, you say, by the way, why does a judge come into court wearing white linen and bearing five scars? He says, I made a visit to this planet once, and this is how you sent me back to heaven. And now God's resurrected me, preserved me. For this day, I will be the judge. Who are before the throne? Who are those judged before the throne? All of the unrighteous for all the way back. Everybody that perished at the flood will be there. Cain will be there who killed his brother. Nimrod and the Tower of Babel occupants will be there. Millions, billions of people will be in this court. Billions will be there, but no defender, no advocate, and no, they, what is amazing about the scene, no one makes any noise. Everybody's absolutely quiet, for all are found guilty. And when you've been caught and you're publicly put on display before the burning eyes of omniscience that you crucified, that you rejected, that you never wanted, this is the final appointment. Now, before he sentences them to eternal hell, let us pick up from the narrative in Luke Six things he says about people who go to hell and what will be true of all that go to hell. Six things. I hope you got a set of notes to help you as we go through this. Number one, as we see the rich man in hell, we see this. Hell is a place of awareness and memory. Uh, the pagans, the Greeks, the pagan world said, when a man dies, as Job asked the question, shall he live again? They said, no. You're just a piece of meat. You're like a dog. When we bury you, uh, the worms decompose the body. It's over. Lie. Lie. Rome came along and said, after you die, we've got other arrangements to get you to heaven. We've got purgatory. We got limbo for children. We got all these middle places. No middle places in Scripture. None. You die, and you will go on in a conscious existence. You don't evaporate. You won't be annihilated. You continue to live. There will be something in the resurrection body of the unsaved that will enable them to live forever without perishing and decomposing. 
And this is what will happen. You will be conscious of your surroundings in hell. Here, the rich man says, I recognize Abraham. Hey, hi, Lazarus. In the scene that Jesus paints, this is the way it used to be. People went to Hades, the righteous and the unrighteous. If it was the unrighteous, they were in a burning hell. If you were across this gulf where the righteous were, you were in a place of paradise. Now, now that has changed. When you die, you don't go to paradise in the earth. You now go to paradise that's in heaven. Because you remember what Paul said? I was caught up to, caught up. How did it get up? I thought it was in the heart of the earth. Ephesians 4, Jesus said, when I came out of the tomb, I led captive, captive. I triumphed over demonic spirits, and I emptied all the righteous from the heart of the earth. I took them up. They're there. And so when we die, I don't go. My con I won't be down there anywhere. There will be no great gulf. I'll be up there in heaven with Christ because the gulf has been ended. The unsaved go to a burning hell. The righteous are caught up because it's been relocated since the death and resurrection of Christ. So it is amazing. In hell, I'll have memory. I'll remember my brothers. I know Abraham. I know my surroundings. It won't be soul sleep. I won't be I'm unconscious. I will be totally conscious of everything. Two, Hell is a place of conscious, physical, mental, and spiritual torment. I'm not only tormented by the flame. I long for water to alleviate the thirst from heat. But I will suffer the fact that I'm separated from the place I should have gone, paradise. I should have been with Abraham. I should have helped my brothers come to a different place. So there's total emotional agony of what I lost, what I missed out on. Thirdly, hell is the only other place you can go besides heaven when you die. It's heaven or hell and no in-between. There's no in-between place. No, not in the Bible. Heaven or hell. We used to say there's a heaven to gain, a hell to shun. Only two options. And you can only decide in this life which place you're going. Fourth thing we can gain from this, hell is where the inhabitants do not want others to come. Isn't that interesting? Have you often heard the, the guys, uh, a real hell-raising kind of guy saying, well, I'll have so much fun in hell because me and my buddies will be, you know, getting high. No, you won't. You'll be isolated in hell. There'll be no parties, no tequila, and no cocaine. Sorry, and no women. Everybody's separated. Everybody's put in their own compartment. Hell is total isolation from God, people, and everything else. The only thing you won't be isolated from is pain, darkness, and aloneness. Hell is just. Hell is just. He says, 
that he would judge every man according to his works. It won't be fraudulent. It won't be you're being framed. It won't be you getting blamed. I'm serving time, and I never did the crime. No, you did the crime. Now you will pay the time. It's just. This is a just God, a merciful God, the God of Calvary, the God of John 3.16, the God of the cross that will be the judge, the one that did the most to keep you from going to hell will be the one that will tell you you're going there. Hell is earned. The wages of sin is death. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that rejects Christ will earn the wages of becoming a slave of sin. It's haunting that you get what you deserve. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s pastored up in Northfield, Massachusetts. He is said to be by some the greatest brains, the greatest brains uh, that America has ever produced both science, philosophy, theology. And uh, this man preached a message one time called the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. He's known the most for sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he preached this sermon. I had it downloaded for me, 50-page sermon, 50-page. He read all of his sermons. He did not preach them. He read them. He never looked up to the audience all the time. He preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. By the time he looked up, they were clinging to the pillars of the church. They were so scared. He gave four, I summarize, four arguments for the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. I give them to you. Here they are. I cannot in any way touch the remarkable description he gives. If you ever want to do it, go up to Google, the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. Number one, if God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. To have lived and to have never loved God. You've lived as an unsaved man. Let's talk, let's assume we're all unsaved here today. I could be saying this, you have not wanted God, you've not obeyed God, you've not received the gift of God, and so would it not be right for you to be judged by God? You don't like God, you break his commandments, you don't love him, you don't want him, you don't, you don't, you don't. And now this God in the Son on the cross, not on the cross, but on the judgment seat, says, you've never wanted my Father. You've never loved him. The only time you say God is when you say God damn, and he told you not to do that. The only time you bring him up is an explicative image of Jesus Christ. I hate it when I hear it. People don't know what else to say, so they say, Jesus Christ, it's wrong. I hear church people say, my Lord. Don't say my Lord unless you want to talk to him. He's not a cuss word. He's not a filler. He's God. He's holy. 
but you made fun of the idea. You laugh at his commandments. You break all of his commandments. He said, don't commit adultery, you laugh. I'll sleep with whoever I want, anytime I want. And who does he have? Who does he think he is to legislate to me? Doesn't he know who I am? Yeah, a rebel against the throne of God. Born a rebel, conceived a rebel. Oh, what? And he will read this off because he will have the books and he'll just read it off. And he says, I have here that you said this about me. I have here that my spirit worked on you and you mocked it. Here uh, I pursued you. I protected you. I supplied for you. I never got a thank you. I never got, you said I had good luck. You didn't have good luck. You had a good God. But you never, you never had time to say thank you, bow to me. You, you've never given me anything but excuses why you can never love a God like me. So I'm the unloved, rejected God by you. I know that. If you were on the throne and I was before you, you would sentence me out of your life. You've already passed that judgment. You didn't want me. So why is it unjust for me not to want you now? Two, if you should forever be cast off by God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. It's not only that you rejected God the Father, but you rejected his best gift. You rejected the best thing God had to offer. God so loved you that he gave his best. And you have said, no thanks. He doesn't appeal to me. I don't like him. He's not. You see, listen to me. Listen. If I said right now, and I gave a choice to everybody, do you want to go to hell or heaven? Well, anybody in the right mind, why, heaven, sure. If I said, what if the entrance was you love Jesus Christ and count him the greatest thing God ever gave? Well, you say, well, I want to go to heaven, but I'm not sold on Jesus. Oh, you're not. What, what is it? Well, I like crystals. I like religion. I like a little of this. I like, now, now, what does Jesus mean to you? It's why some of you aren't saved. You've got a little bit of religion, but you're still going to hell. Because Jesus means little to you. My son-in-law took me to see this film, The Insanity of God. I thought it was a strange title for a movie. Southern Baptist Convention produced it. David Platt ended it, interviewed the Ripken family, missionaries with Southern Baptists that had gone originally to Africa. While being in Africa, Somalia was up in flames, and I believe it's John Ripken. He got a ride with the American Red Cross who were flying in medical supplies water into the war zone 
of uh, Somalia. They, it was amazing. He had just a simple little uh, suitcase, very small. And they said, we'll fly you to where you want to go. And we'll pick you up three weeks from now if you're still alive. He goes in there. I mean, people being shot up, killed. Pastors are being killed. Christians are being killed. He secretly finally met with four men who had come out of a Muslim background who put faith in Christ, and they prayed together, took communion together. Eventually, all four of them are killed. He finally gets out with his life. They fly him. Eventually, he becomes a missionary to the persecuted church. They fly him to China where pastors are being killed in prison. And when he went to China, he told the story of Somalia and the persecuted church and the Chinese believers said, you mean there's a church in other parts of the world? They didn't even know. And the next morning, he was awakened by noise, singing, groaning. And he went and inquired, and all the Chinese believers that were being persecuted, they chose to get up an hour early each morning and intercede for the church in Somalia. Then it takes him to Russia. He goes to Russia, shows a pastor getting ready to be in prison, and he's talking to his wife and a boy that I would put... Uh, anywhere between six to maybe, maybe nine years of age and uh, going to go to prison because he's a Christian and a pastor and he talks to the wife and the boy and he said, son, if I should hear it while daddy's in prison that you're hung because you would not give up Jesus, I will be a proud dad. And the boy says, and daddy, if I hear you should die in prison for Jesus, I will be a proud son. Yes. And the resounding theme throughout the movie is all these persecutors said, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Dad goes to prison every morning in Russian when he could at his prison cell, he would stand and sing. I wish you could hear it. Selah has recorded it. He would sing in Russian, Our God, our strength. Our God, my strength. The first day in prison, every guy that had a cell around him through human feces, through books, anything they had, they could hurl at him. They threw it. It's just flying at him, flying at him. Finally, they figured what he would do every day he could because they took away the Bible. He wrote down every verse he knew by memory, and he would, if he could find paper, and he would paste it up high somewhere so he could remind himself of God's word. But when the guards saw it, they would beat him unmercifully, and uh, he paid a price. He'd always keep trying to do it. They decided the way we'll break him down is we're going to tell him we're going to kill his wife. So they got a woman prisoner, dressed her up like 
his wife looked, dressed her up in her, her attire, but they put her in like a blanket, had a road on her side, but they dragged her. I don't know if they knocked her out or what, but they wouldn't let him see the face and dragged this woman in front of his cell, and they said, will you now give up? We're taking her to the court to kill her if you don't give up this Jesus. And he goes into wailing. How can you kill my wife? How can I give up Jesus? So they take her downstairs at the court, and they do kill her. But she's a convict. He didn't know it wasn't his wife. Eventually, the morning they come to get him to take and kill him in the same court where this woman was killed, as they're marching him down there, 1,000 hardened criminals in a Russian prison all get at the front of their prison cell and start singing in Russian, our God, our strength. Our God, our strength. The guards couldn't carry it out. And eventually it shows the boy or the dad was released, is reunited with his mother, his wife, and his children. And the boy has now grown up. I forget how many years he was there. Grown up, they embrace. Did you give up Jesus while I was in prison? No, Dad. Jesus is worth it. Now, when you stand before the white throne judgment, you've said he's not worth it. He's not worth it. I don't want Jesus. According to John 3, men love darkness too much to come to the light. They love their sins too much to come to the Savior. What is it keeping you from loving Christ? That's the judgment. That light has come into the world, and we chose the darkness. So eternal damnation, guess what it's full of? Darkness. You didn't want the light, so I'll give you an eternity where the lights are out. Third thing he said, if God should forever cast you off and destroy you, it would be agreeable to your treatment of others. If God treats you at the white throne judgment like you've treated other people, you've got guys... When we were at this men's conference this weekend, 35 of our guys at our men's conference, that uh, it was quite a scene to have drug dealers meet guys that bought the drugs at the conference among our guys. One guy came, his father got him to come, and while he's there, he's meeting his drug connection for years. So what are you doing here? I met Jesus. You sold me the drugs. I know it. You pimped me on the streets of Oakland. You stole from me. You raped my sister. You stole from our house. You killed family members. Oh, God's going to treat you like you've treated others. You didn't care who had hurt. You used them for your lust, for your greed, for your shame, and you're going to stand before this God and say, you've used everybody up to now. You're no more using anybody. You're going to be judged according to how you've used people. 
and the sentence, however that's going to be, for eternity, for eternity, the memory of what you've done to others, I'm going to judge you. I have every right to judge you just because of how you've treated human beings. The most dangerous thing in California is not rattlesnakes, it's people. People destroy marriages. People destroy kids. People destroy the state. Not rattlesnakes, people like us apart from the grace of God. And God is going to sentence men. Stalin, you can send it to the death of 50 million Russians. What's it going to be like to hear him scream at you for all eternity? Hitler, six million Jewish people you killed in the gas chambers, plus you turned Europe into a bloodbath. Guess what, Hitler, some way or another, your judgment out of these books is going to be more than the nice lady next door that never wanted God but never hurt anybody. I'm going to judge you according to what you did, and I'm going to judge her according to what she did. If God should eternally cast you off, it would be agreeable to your own behavior towards yourself. When you think of people that are going to hell, they did nothing to save themselves. They did nothing to flee the warning. They did nothing. There's an old song way back that goes this way about who will be there. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel and stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. The gambler was there, and the drunkard, and the man that had sold them the drink with the people who had sold them the license. Together in hell they did sink. The moral man came to the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as moral men too. The soul that had put off salvation, not tonight, I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. At last, he had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. I ask you, why should anybody be before the throne? I want you to remember this, that the rich man in hell said, I want somebody to reach my brothers. Who's reaching your brothers? You got any loved ones going to hell? as they are now. This church has become lazy in evangelism. This place ought to be bulging. We ought to be at three to four services. We got just a little time. But you uh, just want a good sermon. What are you doing to reach the brothers, your family, relatives, neighbors? I am amazed at how, how closed-mouthed we are about Jesus to a lost world. 
Do you have any brothers perishing? Any children? Any parents? Any loved ones? This theme, I downloaded a song that I'd only heard my father sing. He's born 1908. In 1917, he went to a brush arbor in the hills of Oklahoma where they cut the branches of trees and they put up poles. I went to one in Sepulpa, Oklahoma once. And in the hot desert of Oklahoma, not desert, the hot climate of Oklahoma, they built these brush arbors. Only women and children went to them. The men spit tobacco, whipped their wives, and made moonshine. Mean country. My grandma took the children, but John Howard didn't go. But my dad went to that brush arbor with his mother. And the next day he's plowing at nine years of age. And as he told the story, he came to a corner in the field. And that's where he knelt and received Christ as a nine-year-old boy. But this is the song. I found it. He used to sing it. And this was the song. That he said all days he plowed, this song was going through his mind. Judgment day is drawing nigh, where shall I be? When God the work of men shall try, where shall I be? When east and west the fire will roll, where shall I be? How will it be with my poor soul? Where shall I be? Oh, where shall I be when the first trumpet sounds? Oh, where shall I be when it sounds so loud? When it sounds so loud as to wake up the dead, oh, where shall I be when it sounds? When wicked men his wrath shall see, where shall I be? And to the rocks and mountains flee, where shall I be? And hills and mountains flee away, where shall I be? And all the work of men decay, where shall I be? When the Savior reigns from shore to shore, where shall I be? From God's angry presence roll, where shall I be? And as a nine-year-old boy, he told his kids, I knelt, and all I said is, Jesus, you're the only one that knows where I'm going to be. I want to be with you. Could you save a nine-year-old work hand for John Howard? Can you save a nine-year-old boy? If God could save a nine-year-old boy, why hasn't he saved you? Why hasn't he saved your family? Howard Hendricks just told, I heard a lecture by him. They did this. I don't know if Valley would do it. He said he got his class in seminary. He said, I want us to all make a list of the most difficult, impossible people we know of ever being saved. They made a list. Now I want to make a covenant that we as a class will pray every day for these people for 40 days. For 40 days. I have the lecture, if you ever want to hear it. He said, after 40 days, 38 people came to Christ. 38. Who has God saved in your family? I was very somber going through this 
I've got loved ones that are going to stand before the throne unless they take Jesus. You do too. What are we doing? Are we fasting? Are we praying? Are we all, are we all working up a sweat hoping Hillary doesn't win? Trump or Hillary can win. It won't save my loved ones. Ain't no party can save your family. Why don't you get more intense about fasting, praying, agonizing? I guess Christians don't groan anymore. I listen to black gospel because every once in a while I want to hear them groan. I want to hear them groan because I'm in a groaning mood. Save, save, save. I assume I only get to preach to Christians. If I had my way, I'd be preaching to the Oakland Coliseum right now, and they'd have 50,000 Mick Jagger fans there, and I'd preach the gospel to them right now. That's what I wish. I get bored sometimes preaching to the saints. You want my confession? Some of you have been saved so long. Good night. You know everything I'm going to say. You just hope I say it right. You ought to be saying it. I have men at the leader at the Alliance Conference said, when are you going to do Timothy again? Hey, I did it 16 years. When are you going to do it? When are you going to teach some men? When are you going to pass it on? Don't pay me to be church. I'm just another man with lost people. I've got grandsons I'm praying for, grandchildren I'm praying for, a granddaughter. Who cares if she goes to hell? Especially if I don't care. We don't need better preaching. We need better praying. This preacher, we've been, we got more good preachers, more tapes, more CDs, more notes, and we still, we still need a revival because we've been a long time since God swept through this church and just started saving people. I want to see people get saved. I don't want them to say, well, the music's too loud, too low. Uh, the sermon's too short, too long. Oh, baloney. Show me somebody that you led to the Lord. Who are you working on? We can't save, but we sure can't be a midwife. We can be there when the baby's being born and say, Jesus, only you can give us a birth. I long to see people saved. See, this church started in a revival. He saved all kinds of young people, even before I got here. I long to see that. I don't want to maintain a church franchise. God, hasten the day I leave this church if that's all we want to do. God forbid I make you that way. I want to see somebody saved. Had a guy ask me, if you could do it all over again, what would you do? Rent another dance hall, hand me a bunch of pagan kids that I could teach the Bible to and watch God turn them inside out. That's what I want to do. Let me pray for you. Father, not only the pew needs revival, but the pulpit. Lay souls on our heart. We used to sing it, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I forever do my part to win that soul to thee. Fill this place with us going after fish. You said you'd make us fishers of men. 
not just sleeping on the premises, but fishers of men. I ask you, Father, that you would give us a revival where people are saved. Saved. It's later than we think. I thank you. The gospel says you can miss being in front of this throne. You can miss being judged because you will say your sins are forgiven. Your sins are in the past. Judgment's done past if you've put faith in Christ. If you're here and you've never put faith in Christ, if you've never done that, if you'll accept Christ, your judgment will be passed for he is born it for you at the cross. If you don't accept his bearing that punishment, you must bear it, but it will take you eternity and the debt will still be due. What have you done with Christ? And I ask all of you, as I ask myself, is Jesus worth it? Do you want to do it God's way or your way? You get to make the choice. Father, save. Save. My invitation won't save. My ability to evangelize won't save. The gospel saves. If they don't hear Moses, if they don't hear the prophets, if they don't hear the word of God, they will never be saved. It's not how good the preacher is. It's how powerful your word is. Speak. Speak to their heart. Make them want Christ. Make them want Christ for we will go to hell if we don't want him. Oh, only you can make us want you. We love you, and we ought to. We love you, and we ought to. We love you because your first love does. We love you because you bought us. We love you because you're lovely. We love you because there's none greater. Jesus, you're the best. You're the best. We thank you that we've been allowed to know you and you didn't know that you're lovely. You're fairer than 10,000. There's none greater than you. We love you. We adore you. We're not here to play. We're not here to impress. We're here to say, I love you, Lord. Help us to do your will until we see you face to face. And God's people said, oh, grant it, grant it.